This is Habwonk. I'm Joe Silvagi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. More than a quarter of Americans are either foreign-born themselves or who have parents who were born in another country. Yet this direct link to those who have chosen to emigrate to America belies a deep divide between those citizens who wish to severely limit new immigration and those who actively resist any constraints on those seeking citizenship. This seemingly intractable disagreement at the national level has left federally elected officials with little opportunity for legislative compromise and instead empowered them with the prerogatives to enforce their preferred immigration policy. To wit, the Trump administration, having run on a promise to severely restrict immigration through our southern border, used its authority while in power to reinforce border control and implement Title 42, a policy that denied, for public health reasons, asylum claims from anyone crossing into the U.S. during the COVID-19 pandemic. By contrast, the current Biden administration has allowed an eightfold increase in those crossing our border with Mexico and is about to see Title 42 expire with no replacement. This abrupt shift in policy has resulted in an estimated three and a half million undocumented immigrants coming to the U.S. in the last two years and in the face of the restrictions of Title 42 expiring could result in an exponential increase in the years to come. Is this current and future acceptance of so many millions of new undocumented immigrants a tacit approval of an open border policy by the American public and their elected representatives? Or is this extraordinary flow of people through our southern border an attempt by politicians to quietly flout immigration law to satisfy the ideological preferences of their open border constituents? My guest today is immigration expert, journalist, and senior national security fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies, Todd Benzman. Mr. Benzman has written extensively on the experiences on the front lines of the 2,000-mile U.S.-Mexico border, both from the perspective of those seeking to enter the U.S. and from the perspectives of those enforcing the law. Mr. Benzman will share with us his observations of changes in border enforcement from Trump to the first two years of the Biden administration, and will discuss the likely consequences of the imminent expiration of Title 42. When I return, I'll be joined by senior fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies, Todd Benzman. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by the Senior National Security Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies, Todd Benzman. Welcome to Hubwonk, Todd. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we're happy to have you. Uh, this is a issue. We're going to talk about immigration or more specifically uh, what's going on on our southern border right now. It's uh, top of mind and it's in the in the news now. Uh, and you're an expert. You've been an expert for some time. You've worked on immigration uh, analysis uh, for some time. What I liked about your background is uh, you're not merely a reporter, but someone who rolls up his sleeves and um, uh, embeds himself with with communities that are now um, uh, largely immigrating northward towards the United States. Tell us a little bit for the benefit of our listeners about your background in immigration studies. Yeah, so I'm a bit of a hybrid. Uh, this is kind of my third career. Um, first career was as a uh, journalist, a newspaper reporter, uh, classically trained. Uh, my undergraduate is in journalism and my first master's degree is in journalism. And I worked for 23 years as a reporter for, you know, big newspapers like the Dallas Morning News and Hearst. 
uh, all the way through uh, to about uh, 2009. Um, my last three or four years was uh, it, based in San Antonio for Hearst Newspapers in 2006 to, through 2009 during a, a really significant civil drug war in Mexico. And I was an investigative reporter, and that was the hottest story going uh, in South Texas. So that's when I really began my first border uh, reporting. I uh, did a numerous multi-part series of reporting uh, reports about the drug war on both sides of the border. Uh, you know, regular uh, reports that were recognized by the National Press Club twice and some other organizations, but that was really my, those years were my first taste of the border and immigration and border security issues. And after that, in 2000, I was, and maybe partly because of that, I was recruited to join the Texas Department of Public Safety's Intelligence and Counterterrorism Division in Austin, Texas. And um, they were valuing at that time kind of unconventional backgrounds to bring people in uh, to rebuild their intelligence division, huge state agency. Uh, and I worked for the intelligence division for the next 10 years. Uh, a lot of what I did was counterterrorism work in what's called a fusion center uh, with all the federal agencies all under one roof. And my team did counterterrorism primarily, uh, which had a significant nexus to the border. Uh, so then in 2018, the Center for Immigration Studies, I got my second master's degree in uh, Homeland Defense and Security from the Naval Postgraduate School, sponsored by uh, Department of uh, Homeland Security. And my thesis was noticed. Uh, the Center for Immigration Studies recruited me in 2018, and I've been there for the last four years kind of returning back to my roots of reporting again in a way, uh, you know, you, you don't forget that like riding a bicycle. So I'm back down there on the border and uh, spending a lot of time with the immigrants doing this. Well, that, that's a uh, quite an extensive background. You've looked at it from all different angles. Clearly it's a, with an emphasis towards uh, national security and the dangers of what can happen to Americans uh, if uh, border uh, crossings or border activities um, go the wrong way. So, uh, but I also want to emphasize now you're with the Center for um, Immigration Studies. This is a uh, largely a pro-immigration or not more immigration, but better immigration, more coherent policy. Tell us a little bit about the Center for, for Immigration Studies. Well, our, our branding is pro-immigrant, low immigration. Uh, so that's a pretty good, uh, I think, a descriptor for our organization. We produce public uh, education and reporting and studies and perspective and analysis on both legal and illegal immigrant immigration that is uh, consumed mainly by uh, policymakers in Washington inside the beltway but also you know we're we're nationally recognized and read and um, the idea is to just communicate, uh, information about policy uh, and how policy uh, works to either increase or decrease uh, immigration, legal and illegal. Uh, I tend to focus more on the illegal part. 
Sure. Now, I, I don't want to, you know, we're going to stay away from the idea of whether we should have more uh, immigrants or fewer immigrants uh, and really focus on what we do have. We're going to sort of take a, a cold look at the reality of what's going sure. on. So for the benefit of our listeners who, you know, we're, we're primarily a Boston-based, New England-based think tank, uh, they're unfamiliar with what it looks like uh, on the border. We, we have no real idea what it's like to be near the border with uh, our neighbor to the south of Mexico, unlike those people in Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California. Um, we don't know what's going on. How many people, um, either legally or illegally, cross that border every day or year? What, what's going on right now? Well, I think it helps to have some perspective, some historical perspective. And I'll I'll just give you uh, the perspective of uh, former Secretary of uh, DHS, Jay Johnson, who just a couple of years ago uh, retired. He's from the Obama administration. And he said that when he was DHS Secretary, if the number of apprehensions at the border ever exceeded 1,000 a day, that was an unacceptable crisis. That was a really significant event. He said, I'd be in a bad mood anything over 1,000 a day. Uh, we then had the uh, Trump administration, uh, who was probably in the neighborhood of a uh, thousand to fifteen hundred a day. There was a spike uh, that went to you know uh, three or four thousand a day uh, in 2019. He rustled that down back down to you know a thousand fifteen hundred a day. Uh, and then Title 42, which is the pushback. This is important. I'm going to tell you because this is very uh, significant uh, as a policy uh, measure um, because of the pandemic in March 2020. Uh, there was a public health measure called Title 42 that allowed for Border Patrol to push back everybody they caught back to Mexico. Uh, and they were pushing back about 90% of everybody all the way up until the Biden administration came in. The Biden administration on the very first day opened up very significant exemptions in Title 42 uh, for family units, unaccompanied minors, and pregnant women. That set off uh, a mass migration crisis of those categories, primarily of those categories because they're getting in. Word spreads, hey, if you're a family with a kid, you're getting in. Uh, and we quickly went to uh, 4,000 a day, 5,000 a day, 6,000 a day, uh, to where we are now, which is about uh, 7,500 a day, uh, which would probably give Jay Johnson a heart attack if he was uh, still in uh, in office. And so then seven, seven and a half times the level of a bad day uh, in the past, right? And largely, yeah. you said this is so. To be clear for our listeners, Title Forty Two was a, a, a sort of a COVID measure, uh, pandemic measure, saying, look. Uh, we've got a pandemic on our hands. The last thing we need are people coming across with who knows what health condition. Let's let's sort of slow this down until we get our handle on the uh, pandemic, and then perhaps revisit it when we're uh, when we're past it. We're now, thankfully, uh, two and a half years. Uh, we we think we're past it, um, but largely that was a health measure. What what happened? You said turn back. I just want to define the terms. When someone crossed during Title Forty Two, where did they go when they were quote unquote turned back? So Border Patrol typically would pick them up uh, in the brush, put them on a transport vehicle and drive them to the bridge to uh, the nearest port of entry back to Mexico and say, head back. And they would be taken back to the Mexican side. 
So that's pretty much what it looks like. It was pretty simple. If you were over there, and I often was, you could stand by the bridge and just watch them march over, you know, large groups being marched back in. Uh, nothing at all to dissuade or uh, stop them from turning right around and trying again and again and again, uh, which is what happened. Uh, so then you had the numbers of apprehensions started to spike uh, to about uh, to, to about 200,000 a month. Uh, a lot of those were recidivists uh, until we had about 1.7 million in the first year of the Biden administration, which is a U.S. record, 1.77 million apprehensions. So, That's those the are apprehensions. So, okay, again, I want to be specific. Were 1.7 million people then, as you say, caught up in a brush? They uh, were caught. Yeah. Bridge, and and 1.7 million people were dumped back on the other side of the bridge? Or what happened to those 1.7 people? 1.7 million people. So, uh, under the Trump administration, they were put. They were forty-twoing. We in in vernacular, we just call them forty-twoing. They were forty-twoing about ninety percent of everybody that they caught. Uh, there were some that the Mexicans just wouldn't take. Uh, so ninety percent. The Biden administration on its first day reduced that to sixty percent mm-hmm. of everybody, and then over time they've reduced that to about 40 percent. So 70% of everybody that they catch uh, are now paroled into the country. They're just simply released into the United States. Uh, 30 to 40% back to Mexico where they could keep trying and trying. Uh, it gets complicated. I'm not going to lie to you uh, because on a, in addition to, I mean, I'm going to just say that altogether in the two last two years, the Biden administration has pushed back to Point people 2.5 million times under Title 42. It, it was a speed bump. It was a significant deterrence. Uh, unless you were a family group or uh, an unaccompanied minor, those people got right in and paroled straight into the interior of the country within a day or two. The rest had to keep trying and trying or decide to wait in Mexico until circumstances changed. So in addition to the uh, 1.77 million in, in 2021 apprehensions that they laid hands on, in 2022, it was 2.37 million. So uh, no, altogether oh. App- oh. processed by border okay, patrol. Mm-hmm. On top of that, there were at least 1 million gotaways that just got through and the border patrol never laid hands on them. That's a very significant part of the crisis because because Border Patrol got very, very tied up and busy processing the family groups. So they weren't on the line. There was nobody there. It was an undefended border. So more than a million people, if they got Title 42, they could go over here and cross and get into the country. So at least a million, uh, probably a million and a half by now have been, uh, got. they're called gotaways, it's official vernacular, uh, that got into the country. The Biden administration has probably paroled in and allowed into the country under a, uh, you know, notice to report and parole and all these other things that they came up with, another two and a half million. So they're probably three and a half new 
residents of the United States inside the country off that border in the last 24 months, with Title 42 still kind of acting as a kind of a deterring, modulating uh, force. Now, I, I want, before we go further, I just want to, um, so in the past two years, effectively, um, since the changes um, brought on by the Biden administration, you say there's a, a million people who got across the border and nobody saw, At and least. roughly another two and a half million that because of, let's say, changes or exceptions to 42, uh, got in. So we're looking at three and a half million people. You said they got in or they're in. I want to ask what happens to them, but just for our listeners um, to to get a sense of that number, we've got about 650,000 Bostonians in the city of Boston. We're looking at seven Bostons in two years uh, in the country, really without any official permission. Can I go that far and say, obviously the people who came across were not not apprehended, but those who were apprehended, and then, as you say, paroled in, they're still not of any legal status. They're just here because they they came, right? So, uh, right. do I have those facts right? Do I have about the the scale right? Yeah, you do. Uh, I mean, another way to look at that is, you know, I mean, the populations the size of Los Angeles and Chicago combined uh, are in the country now. Uh, huge. I mean, we. The United States has never experienced anything like this. And that's with Title 42 in place. Uh, the, it's beyond anything in the American experience that the highest number that has ever been registered apprehended apprehensions at the border was in 2000. And that was about 1.6 million apprehensions. In a typical year, there might be 300, 400, 500,000 apprehensions at the border, not 2.4 million, to give you a, a sense of the scale of this thing. Uh, and then in two years in a row, and a third year, we've just started the third year of the administration, and it really looks like it's about to you know, go on steroids here because Title 42 is going to end very shortly. Maybe by the time this, this thing airs, it'll be over. And the intelligence community is estimating uh, that the daily apprehensions will rise to anywhere from 12,000 a day to 18,000 a day. Uh, we're looking at potentially 540,000 a month uh, that will be pouring over the border because uh, everybody who reaches the border now will be allowed into the country in, in some form or another with very few actually ever removed or deported and that's that's where we're, we're about to head right now so i want to so again for the benefit of our listeners many of whom uh, i might include myself in that list uh who are sympathetic to uh the plight of uh migrants or immigrants uh what they're leaving behind is absolute dreadful you know crushing poverty uh one can't fault them for wanting a better life for themselves and for their children and their future so I have no uh, animus towards those people who want to immigrate. Nevertheless, um, we're Americans, and and in those border towns, when we're talking about millions of people crossing the border, what is the effect? You're, I believe, in Texas now. What is the effect in Texas or Arizona or New Mexico? With, you know, I'm sure they're somewhat familiar with um, this phenomenon. They've lived in Texas. They've, it's always been next to Mexico, so they they know what they're dealing with. 
the scale of this must be completely disruptive. It must be impossible to uh, to carry on normal public health or transportation or education. What's going on there? I mean, you have to see it to believe it. it it's it's. I mean, I've been covering the border for a long time. Border patrol agents uh, down there who they do this for a living. Uh, nobody has ever seen anything like this. Uh, it is just pandemonium uh, in town after town after town uh, within probably about 100 miles, anything within 100 miles of the Texas border, uh, you know, car chases uh, every day, two, three times a day, crazy crashes, uh, tractor trailer uh, pullovers and bailouts, everybody running in every direction, uh, police chases. Uh, you have places like El Paso right now that are just so overwhelmed that there are just thousands of immigrants sleeping in the streets. And uh, I think El Paso just declared an emergency. It was like that in Eagle Pass. It was like that in Yuma, Arizona. It's been like that in Rio Grande Valley. It moves, it shapeshifts. Uh, it depends on what's happening at any one time with policy. But it, it is, um, it's worth noting that though that the, the actual border communities are transit zones. They're eventually going to, nobody's staying there. They're all uh, finding ways by plane, bus, uh, you know, taxi, friends, whatever, to be uh, transported to cities across America. So those, uh, you know, three and a half million people are in uh, cities across America. They're everywhere. They don't stay on the border. They're leaving the border so as soon as they possibly can. Uh, and the way that looks is that there are these operations uh, in every border community where nonprofit organizations are receiving handoffs from the Border Patrol after processing um, seven days a week, all day long. And charter buses pull up fill with uh, immigrants and then drive to some city in the interior. Uh, and that's happening all along the border uh, from Tijuana all the way to uh, Matamoros, constant flow of you know, planes and buses into the interior. It's an importation operation, a conveyor belt system. And I've watched it. I've, I've been in a number of these and I, I'm, you can just see Border Patrol drives up drops them at a nonprofit spot. The nonprofit people help them arrange for their purchases of bus tickets. And there's a Greyhound right there on site. So Border Patrol pulls up here, they process in, and then they're filling these buses over here. And it's just like going like that all day, every day for two years straight. So so that's your reality. We, we've had recently, it made headlines where uh... I think it was uh, Governor DeSantis was uh, kind enough to send yeah. us 48 uh, immigrants, only 48, <laughs> not 48,000 right. or 4.8 million, but rather 48 uh, flew them to Martha's Vineyard. Um, it, it was quite quite newsworthy. Uh, it's a whole different scale. Uh, and they were promptly uh, shuffled off the island 48 hours later. Um, but uh, where are, you know, taking an entirely parochial Boston, New England perspective, are those buses headed to Boston or do, do we see the um, conveyor belt? Does it reach us? Yes. Uh, the immigrants have been pouring into Massachusetts for two years straight. I interview them all the time. Where are you going? I'm going to Boston. I'm going to Massachusetts. 
they've been going, they've been pouring into Boston for two years straight, nonstop, thousands and thousands and thousands. You just never hear about it for whatever reason, your media isn't covering it, or maybe they are covering it and I'm not aware of it, but it did strike me as uh, humorous in a way that all the hubbub about the 48 in Martha's Vineyard, because your state's been getting thousands and thousands of immigrants for years already, right off the border, fresh off the border. And so have all those states. New York has been getting just tens of thousands. Washington, D.C., it didn't take governors to, in Texas and Florida, to fill those places up. They were already being filled for like a year and a half straight, month after month after month. So, um, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, I think uh, we're talking about uh, how states manage this this challenge, this crisis, whatever we want to label it. Uh, but really, uh, immigration is a federal issue, right? We decide at the federal level how who comes across our borders. Um, you mentioned the Biden administration, and of course, those who follow politics knows that uh, both the, of course, the executive branch, but also both houses of Congress have been in the control of the same party for the last two years. Um, so in theory, if one had the political will to do something about this, to address sort of the chaos and the disorganized uh, tragedy, which is both the plight of the immigrants and those communities who receive the immigrants, why isn't there anything being done uh, constructively to uh, create order out of this insanity? Uh, okay. So, I mean, at this point, I need to just explain a couple things. So the the Biden administration has done something that no other administration has ever done before, which is to take a position that it will uh, not enforce uh, congressional statutes. Uh, they just simply decided not to do it. Uh, and what that means is, uh, you know, the statutes are very clear. When you cross the border illegally, you are to be detained in a detention center. You can claim asylum, you can, you know, whatever you're going, you're going to claim, but you have to be detained inside a detention facility uh, for the duration of your, until we decide whether you're going to be released or deported. But if you're not released, then you are to be deported. The Biden administration decided uh, before they even entered office that they are not going to do detentions or deportations anymore. So, uh, and this was an affirmative decision that they have stated over and over and over again. We don't detain and we don't deport. It's cruel and inhumane to enforce our laws that are on the books. So uh, instead, what they're doing is they have created these ad hoc uh, alternative policies. For example, the use of something called humanitarian parole which is supposed to be, it's in the INA, the Immigration and Naturalization Act, but it's supposed to be case-by-case uh, case individualized. If you cross illegally and you're wounded, you've got 10 bullets in you, uh, we're going to let you in. And um, Or if you need you know, some kind of dire situation or whatever it is on a case-by-case case basis. But the administration decided to apply humanitarian parole to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people all at once. There's litigation about it and all the rest, but it's slow moving. But uh, a lot of credible legal minds have questioned their use of humanitarian parole. 
The other, in order to avoid, they just want to avoid detention. They don't do detention anymore uh, or, or removal. The other thing that they did was they uh, started handing out alternatives to detention, which is to say that you can report in on an honor system to ICE in a year or so in the city of your choice. So they're like, it's kind of this honor system for millions of people. So you cross in, you get humanitarian parole and a document that says in Chicago or Boston, sometime in the next year, you should report in to ICE and then do whatever you're gonna do to figure out. So when word of this spread to Latin America and Africa and the rest of the world, of course, you know, they came uh, and they never stopped coming in the largest numbers we've ever seen and in the greatest diversity of nationalities we've ever seen. Uh, those policies are the things that caused this. Uh, normally, Democratic administrations like Obama, Bill Clinton, they followed the law. You were detained and you would be deported if you didn't if you didn't have a grounds to be in the country, that's none of that's happening. The administration from the very first day eliminated deportations from the interior. I'm not talking about Title 42. I'm talking about just interior deportations. The numbers are down 80% across the board of every possible, even criminal aliens. They yeah. stopped deporting criminals. Todd, I want to put a point on this. I think many people hear our conversation and they think, okay, so we're not deporting people. It's a problem, you know, uh, you know, but these uh, immigrants, you know, they're sympathetic characters. I, I understand why they want to come. It's as if the um, the wave of new immigrants merely just happened as if there had been some sort of hurricane or earthquake or you know, some phenomena that happened in South no. or Central America that forced these people who would otherwise have stayed home uh, north. But rather what you're saying is the actual policy is sort of a like a beacon to the world saying this is the time to come. If you're interested in coming to the United States, come now because you will not be turned away. So in a sense, the policies create they don't merely fail to address the problem. They actually create the problem. You know, that's essentially what you're saying. Right. And, you know, I don't want to uh, underplay the fact that the rest of the world is a lot of it's a terrible place. Uh, you, you, you I mean, you can understand why somebody wants to leave their their homeland. Uh, those are root. They, they're so-called root causes. They exist. Root causes exist. There are these push factors in their home countries. The, the, but those don't really change. Those are steady state. They certainly don't change quickly. Uh, not quickly enough to explain mass rushes and mass retreats of people. The only thing that explains mass rushes and mass retreats is whether the door is open or closed at the U.S. border. That's the toggle. That's the main toggle. And liberals and conservatives always argue about which is the toggle. The push factors, is that the thing? Uh, but I, I would I would agree with liberals that there are push factors and root causes. Uh, I've been to a lot of these countries and, uh, you know, I, I can certainly sympathize uh, with anybody who would want to leave Nicaragua or Venezuela right now. But 
you know, there are 750 million people in the world who live in extreme poverty and another couple billion that live in just bad poverty. Uh, and so, you know, governments have to have controls over who comes in. I mean, it's a basic sovereignty issue, a sovereign right. Uh, so when the Biden administration stopped deporting, deporting people from the interior, they tried a complete moratorium at first, it got thrown out, and then they did some other things that ended deportation, and at the same time started accepting uh, exemptions from Title 42 of these of family units and unaccompanied minors, it set off this, you know, listen, I never met an immigrant who didn't have a modern cell phone fully connected to the internet. They're in social media and they send selfies home when they're on the buses at the, the, the nonprofits getting let in with their papers. And everybody downstream is like, wow, we're getting in. All we got to do is bring the kids. We're in. So, so you characterize, or you know, again, we're, we're talking about a pretty dire situation now, but you characterize Title 42, which is again uh, top of mind for everyone. It's uh, front page in the news. It, it existed as a as a sort of a, um, a relic uh, um, uh, of, of COVID. Now it's it's sort of uh, again, there were a couple of uh, attorneys generals from red states appealing, saying you know to lift it now would be disruptive. So. There's a temporary stay, I suppose, from the Supreme Court. We don't want to get into all the legal aspects, but it's it's not long for this world, right? It's it's imminent. It's not if it's as you say, if it's lifted before this is aired, okay, but it may be a week after that. What will happen when it is lifted? Which, you know, I hope you'll agree, or I think you'll agree, uh, it's imminent and inevitable. What will happen? Right. So the intelligence community, as I mentioned, uh, is predicting anywhere from twelve thousand to eighteen thousand a day. Uh, I haven't seen for how long that's supposed to last, but but the administration's response plan to this is not to block and stop and deter this. It never has been. Uh, they openly say that their policy is to facilitate the safe, orderly, humane, and legal uh, pathway into the United States to take advantage of our legal systems. What they so that that's a, that's a, a an unprecedented departure from anything that has ever happened in the United States with its border. That is like a the idea of that uh, is just like would not could never you know have happened before uh, before this. And what is at the root of it is when they say legal systems and legal pathways to our legal systems, they're talking about the asylum law. Uh, the asylum law is set up in such a way that that economic migrants from a poor country like Honduras, uh, all they have to do is touch the border and say, I plan to at some point apply for asylum on the basis of political persecution. But, but there is no, they don't have to prove it. They just have to say it. And the uh, United States just has to believe it up to 10%. If, it, if it's, there's a 10% probability that they think that you're telling the truth, you get into the country under parole or to report in in a year or two and, and maybe apply later. Uh, it doesn't matter that the majority of them will never even do that. 
and that the 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 greater supermajority will be turned down eventually for asylum but it doesn't matter because the end game is to just get in and disappear and live and work illegally that's the end goal because they're economic immigrants not really fleeing political persecution title 42 blocked uh, asylum you couldn't claim asylum uh and the 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 whole thing about title 42 is that it when it goes away it then makes that asylum process available to 100% of everybody who reaches it that's why they're pooled up they're like we're going to get in now all we have to do is just say it and this administration will let us in previously you stood a pretty good chance of getting prosecuted for illegal entry and detained for a long, long time, uh, and then eventually deported from the detention centers. You're not, the law says you have to be detained the entire time, but the backlog for asylum is six years. So if you apply for asylum, you get in this backlog, you qualify for work authorization, for public benefits and welfare for years before you get declined, and then you just disappear illegally and say, come and get me. Well, this administration is never going to come and get you because we don't do deportation anymore. Indeed. I, I think, again, we, we're getting running along uh, on time. No, sorry. I think some, some of our listeners are going to say, look, um, you know, I believe in open borders and others say, I, I believe in closed borders. Uh, but what I'd say is, I think the importance of the show is let's have that debate. Let's have a conversation, but we ought to do it with open eyes. It does seem that um, even though this seems to me to be a massive story. Again, we, we trained our attention on 48 people who came to Martha's Vineyard and are seem to be a, a blind to three and a half million people who are, you know, in, in places that are less conspicuous. Uh, I, I'd love to have the public debate, but it seems that uh, nobody's following it. Um, you, you mentioned the fact that this is not really a congressional legislative policy, but essentially the administration flouting the, the existing laws, essentially refusing to enforce them. Um, you know, what, what can our listeners do? I, I, you know, I, I'm going to blend this with the, if you were king for a day, how would a, a person who clearly works for an immigration studies think tank fix this? In other words, how can we, in a sense, get a sense of a, a handle on the people coming to our country, hopefully uh, do it in a, in a more responsible, managed way? What, what ought to be done uh, as citizens and as, as in leadership? Well, in leadership, uh, you know, there's always this talk about, oh, we the system's broken. We need immigration reform, comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, I would dispute that. Uh, I think our immigration system is just fine uh, for the most part. There are some tweaks that need to that need to be made, but but really, the uh, administrations, Republican or Democrat, uh, they differ only uh, to the extent to which they enforce. The laws that are on the books. The laws on the books are very deterring. There's prosecution. There's detention, long-term detention. Um, there, there. It is deterring. And then there's deportation. Normally, those are the things that control a border. Uh, there, the the things that would have to change is the asylum law uh, is set up so that it doesn't matter if you crossed ten other countries that were perfectly safe. Uh, and that if you even had asylum in three of them already, uh, we we don't check and we don't care. The, our asylum law 
says that that if you show up at our border, uh, except for with Canada, we do have a, a a deal with Canada, but on the southern border, it doesn't matter if you already had asylum in in one or two or three other countries. We let you in to claim asylum here. Uh, that needs to be fixed. The day that that gets fixed is the day that all mass migration crises end. Uh, and then there's another thing called the Flores Settlement. I don't want to grind out too much time, but uh, there is a uh, a cap on the amount of time that we are allowed to detain families to 21 days and under. That has been abused in in a huge uh, way. Uh, the Flores Settlement needs to get fixed. The asylum law needs to be tweaked, and we're good. Uh, and and the administration needs to be compelled, maybe by the Supreme Court, to just abide by statutes that are on the books. Indeed. So, uh, again, uh, we are a kind, compassionate country, one of uh, historically many, many immigrants. We're all sort of got here one way or the other. Uh, so we don't want to sound as if we're either anti-immigrant or anti-asylum. Certainly those people who are escaping uh, political persecution, uh, we we want to... Uh, hold the torch up for them, we don't want uh, to, in a sense, allow for people to exploit that kindness by flouting or, or exploiting weaknesses or vague vagaries in our in our asylum law. So those are those are good prescriptions for success. I hope uh, uh, someone listening will uh, will take them to heart. Um, I appreciate your time today, Todd. You've uh, you, you got a rich knowledge of the information. Where where can our listeners read more about your work or the Center for Immigration Studies? Sure. Well, all all of my work for the Center for Immigration Studies is there, uh, cis.org. Uh, and we have a lot of great writers and commentators also, uh, and a lot of good reporting there about this issue. Uh, you can also see uh, my my um, website at toddbensman.com. And I have a, a book that is forthcoming in February about this particular crisis, since it's the largest thing that anything that anybody's ever seen in U.S. Uh, history. Uh, it's all about the first two years of this crisis, how it started. It's called Overrun. It'll be at bookstores uh, February 23rd. Okay. All right. Well, good. Now we've got some, uh, another action item. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, pre-order your book, perhaps, uh, if possible. <laughs> so, again, thank you for being my guest on uh, Hub Wonk. You've been, you've been a terrific uh, fund of information, and our listeners, I'm sure, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of Hub Wonk. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support Hub Wonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you'd like to make it easier for others to find us, you're welcome to offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me about future Hubwonk episodes, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.